Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, Delegates All, to episode 18 of the Delegation Game. Yes, I know, it's a little bit late, I'm sorry about that. Hopefully now we'll be able to move on to being more timely and punctual, because I'm actually finally, finally finished with college, and all of those meetings and corrections and everything else that that entails, and hopefully now I'll be able to focus fully on this podcast over the summer, until the PhD preparations start up and then we'll be back into the swing of things by about September. For now, though, I have got a lot of stuff to get through, because this episode here is a bit of a different one to the normal delegation game episodes you lovely delegates may be used to. That's because the last week or so has not really involved all that much new developments in terms of treaties and that kind of thing. And the main reason for that is because we've made really good progress with the actual German treaty, and that original conflict, which had so divided the Allies into the two camps, has been mostly resolved. So thanks, in particular, to Vittorio Orlando and Antonio Mora for making that happen. I appreciate you guys resolving the issues that Spain and Italy have, and I'm now looking forward to seeing what else we can achieve in the time that we have left in this game. Supposedly, I've heard word that you're trying to sort out treaties not just with Austria and Hungary, but also Bulgaria. If you wanted something really tricky, why not try and sort out Turkey as well? Who knows what might happen. So in this episode here, as we said, there isn't that much new developments happening. So rather than imagining what those different delegates were doing, since they didn't have much to occupy themselves, I'm going to save that until the next episode. And today we're going to look instead at, well... Essentially the Russian situation, because that's been kind of on the back burner for a while, and we're going to give that its proper resolution, and essentially wave goodbye to its main actors, so that we can turn our full attention in the next episode to the German treaty, and everything else within that treaty. Without any further ado then, I hope you're ready for this somewhat different, but also still hopefully very fun episode. I will now take you to the city of Kiev, where a mood of melancholy had set in. We're down to the last handful of cans, General, Dingleverse said, in a tone which carried notes of an apology as well as apprehension. I hear Kiev contains a vast population of dogs, so the men will not starve, Should I begin gathering this alternative food supply at once? David McKay hesitated. A few weeks ago, the notion of eating his favourite animal would have horrified him, yet he knew from his stomach pains and muscle wastage that starvation had long since set in. He had been determined not to sit in his privileged office, which was really a bombed-out former post office on Kiev's main street, while the men did all the grunt work. So, while the soldiers dug trenches gathered resources and engaged in some hunting, 
McKay did as much as he could with them. He refrained from inflating his own rations, which earned him the begrudging respect of his thoroughly demoralised multinational force. Among this multinational force, only a few hundred Australians now remained. The rest were scattered like dust to the wind, thousands of miles apart. How long, McKay wondered, could they possibly hold out? The previous week had been hairy indeed, as the Red Army had launched a limited probing attack towards their defences. A mile or two to the east, he could see fires and smoke. Like his ancestors, McKay knew what this meant. Camps were being established, and as the fires grew in number, so did McKay's concerns. The Red Army was evidently planning for one last ditch assault on their position, but the news was worse than that. Men who had been out foraging yesterday had returned in a rush. The Soviets were attacking from the west as well. This could only mean one thing. The Red Army were attempting to cut McKay's force off. If they surrounded the city, which now seemed likely that they had, then there would be no hope for retreat, let alone triumph. The SOS which he had sent out to Warsaw had apparently gone unanswered. McKay had heard nothing, yet he lived in hope that his force of some 20,000 or so able-bodied men would be rescued. Surely the Clemenceau Directive could not stutter to an end in such an ignominious manner. Slivers of hope continued to bolster the men's spirits. One Latvian volunteer had claimed that a cousin had sent him a message via carrier pigeon to the effect that the Allies had heeded the SOS and were mobilising all available forces, including the Freikorps, those radical German anti-communists, many of whom had missed out on the real fighting of the war. A few months ago, McKay might have been fussier, the shame of being rescued by the Germans, of all people. But now, none of that seemed to matter. All that mattered was the picture which stared back at him as he flicked open his pocket watch. Home. He would accept help from any individual if it meant returning home. Other rumours had reached him through Lieutenant Dinglebrush that a hit squad had been sent to murder Lenin, the Soviet leader. One could only imagine what calamity would befall the Reds if their spiritual and ideological figurehead was struck down. It would be akin to losing the Tsar before an heir had been born. McKay wasn't confident of the Soviet succession process, but from what he had seen, he was confident that it would greatly disrupt matters, provided the rumours were true. McKay nourished himself on these ideas. There weren't many other places to get nourishment from, after all, and he hoped against hope that the rumours could be true. It was better than accepting the more likely possibility that the Allies had forgotten about he and his men and moved on to more important matters, like the peace treaty with Germany. Then he heard a loud, shrill whistle, and McKay snapped to the tower of St Andrew's Church, where a lookout remained posted. The lookout, a rugged pole, waved back at him the signal. The Reds were indeed approaching from the west. Peering through the binoculars, it was clear that the Red Army was moving slowly towards them. He could make out the puffs of cigarette smoke which hovered above the heads of some of these men, these enemies. Yet how similarly they walked, behaved and moved to his own men. McKay barely heard the call go out from Dinglebrush to the NCOs, the order of mobilise and prepare the men to resist the invader. Kiev had, in the last few weeks, been turned into a fortress, the side alleys fortified, the most advantageous vantage points occupied, secret mines planted, bridges destroyed, traps laid, sandbags set, and many more acts of preparation besides. McKay was not sure how long they could last. His experience of urban warfare had been confined to just these last few weeks. This was not like any other battle, because these men under his command knew what awaited them if they surrendered. Particularly the Russian volunteers in his charge, who had signed up at great personal risk. He had heard that a cousin of the Tsar was among those volunteers, but perhaps this was yet another rumour in a sea of others. McKay meticulously loaded his Moisin Nagant rifle, a gift, so it was said, from a fallen Red Army sniper. The scope was as useful as the weapon itself. From this second-story office, McKay had a view over one of the main entrances to the city from the west. If the Red Army invaded, he would definitely see them. Taking a deep breath and taking one last look at his pocket watch, McKay flipped it closed and assumed his position. If he was to be struck down now, then it would not be without a fight. 
Many miles away to the west, a curious sight was taking shape. Paul von Leto Vorbeck, the veteran commander of the Africa campaigns, a resourceful, skilled and effective leader of men, had been given the latest in a series of impossible tasks which had defined his military career. Kiev, ten miles, remarked one of his subordinates. General, should we assume battle formation? Von Leto Vorbeck nodded in acknowledgement. These Freikorps men were infamous for playing as soldiers, but they seemed at least now to be rather good at this play-acting. Perhaps it would all hit the fan once the bullets started flying. That would be the true measure of them. The route ahead had been cleared by the 10,000 Bulgarians who had been brought into the scheme, but reportedly it was too dangerous to venture more than two or three miles within the city limits of Kiev, as the Reds had it surrounded. The element of surprise, as von Leto Vorbeck well knew, was essential. The Reds had to think he had more men under his command than he did. The 50,000 or so volunteers were passionate, eager for battle, and a little extreme, but the sheer numbers of the Reds were disconcerting to say the least. An ambush near Smolensk, the word went, had proved disastrous for McKay's forces. The initially optimistic advance had been surprised and routed, falling back in disarray to Kiev, where it had resided in misery for nearly a month. All the while, the Reds had husbanded their strength and prepared their finishing blow. Some of the men in his command had started calling themselves the Redeemers. Von Leto Vorbeck wasn't sure if they referred to their redemption of Germany or the rescue of McKay's doomed army. Whatever the reason for the nickname, the cause was what mattered to Von Leto Vorbeck. He had met General McKay in person during the conference and believed wholeheartedly that this Australian was a good man, unaffected by prejudice or jealousy, and desirous simply to leave a better world for his young children. Supposedly, Dinglebrush had managed to stow away on a donkey, and legend had it that he rode that donkey for 50 miles, feeding it with carrots from his waistcoat pocket so that it would gallop day and night. The sight must have been something to behold, but Van Leto Vorbeck had long ceased to pay much attention to the rumour mill. At least it brought his men a respite from the bitter realities of their mission, though. Unlike the Tiger Brigades, who had commissioned what turned out to be a Bolshevik firm to produce their rations, the Freikorps men brought with them old rations from the war, with the Imperial German flag still imprinted upon some of the cans. It was a curious contradiction. If anyone asked what they were fighting for, a furious Freikorps soldier would insist that they were fighting to rid the world of the Asiatic menace of Bolshevism. Another might insist that they were claiming what was rightfully theirs in Russia, while another would insist that they were resuming the war against the Slavs, which had only recently been put on hold. He had assured Chancellor Scheidemann that removing the men from Ukraine after pushing the Reds back would not be an impossible task. He had also insisted that Berlin not expect any miracles. There would be no repeat of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, as Germany was not here to conquer, no matter what some Freikorps might have believed. They were here to rescue, but as von Leto Vorbeck knew, there was another good reason for his journey. They were escorting a top-secret hit squad, reportedly with orders from the peacemakers back in London to eliminate Lenin himself. Von Leto Vorbeck had neither confirmed nor denied the mission when asked by his men. Evidently, the top-secret mission had leaked out into the always-active rumour mill. These assassins would disguise themselves as Red Army soldiers and march all the way to Moscow, where Lenin would be shot. That, von Leto Vorbeck had heard, was what the men suspected, so that task became one of trying to find out who among them had been given this mission. Only von Leto Vorbeck had been told, and he wasn't telling the identities of these men. If this incredible plan was to work, the identity of the culprits had to be kept absolutely secret for as long as possible. Some hours passed, as the expanse of the wasteland gave way to a clearing with the spires of a city in the distance. The sun reached the middle of the sky, and its rays gleamed off the surface of the buildings, as if inviting the men forward. Kiev, five miles, a voice behind von Leto Vorbeck said. The men now changed tactic. They finally did properly get into formation. They discarded all cigarettes and they maintained strict silence. Moving off the road, the long caravan of men spread out so that a crowd of men moved forward all at once, rather than a line three or four abreast. 
Von Leto Vorbeck, seated on a black horse, turned to look behind him. He couldn't help but be impressed with the feat. After so many months causing trouble in the Baltic, now these men would finally have a true mission to sink their teeth into. He had to marvel at their ability to gather information as well. Operation Redeemer had been the name given to this mission. Evidently the men had gotten wind of it and applied it to their mission. Little did they know that the term Redeemer did not apply to Germany or even to soldiers under McKay's command which they were hoping to rescue and redeem from defeat. Instead, it was themselves that they were redeeming. By fighting on the right side, President Marshal Foch had proclaimed these ruffians and criminals would redeem themselves like the Crusaders' liberation from sin. Nobody had seen fit to inform Foch of the awkward reality of the Crusades, or its sticky end, but the name Operation Redeemer had nonetheless stuck. Some, indeed, had believed that von Leto Vorbeck was their redeemer, and that he would redeem Germany and their lives once all this was over. He had heard the men imagine aloud that, If the Lion of Africa can hold off 300,000 men with only 15,000 natives, imagine what he can do with 50,000 Germans. The Lion is undefeated, he had heard another proclaim, and undefeated he shall remain. It was quite a bit of pressure, but having spent the last fortnight building up a rapport with his men, he needed them to believe every legend, every rumour, every pronouncement, if it helped bring them closer to victory. After all he had heard about the Red Army, Paul von Leto Vorbeck suspected that he would need all the help he could get. Five miles to the east, along the main road of a once bustling Ukrainian city, McKay remained hunkered down. Dinglebush burst through his office door, and McKay raised his pistol only to lower it again. Gunfire could be heard not far away. Status report, McKay barked as Dinglebush unfurled some pieces of paper and proceeded to gesture to them. General, Dinglebush began, I've heard the estimates of the men in the different sectors of the city. They gave me the numbers under their direct command and the numbers which they believe the enemy will soon bring to bear. McKay was visibly impressed. This would help clarify matters. Thank you, Lieutenant. Tell me, is the dynamite prepared? Yes, General. Once the Reds get past the Red Line, the city limits will blow sky high. McKay made a face. It had probably been Dinglebrush's idea to call it the Red Line, but he supposed Dinglebrush deserved such an honour after his performance. Tell me, Lieutenant, any word on... Reinforcements? McKay asked. Dinglebush's expression turned grave, but then, as though reconsidering, offered a glimmer of hope. I have not heard anything, General, but that Latvian fellow I mentioned to you earlier swears that a large force under the command of Paul von Leto Vorbeck is only days away. McKay was incredulous. Lieutenant, either that man is off his head, or he is in possession of the greatest news I've heard since the birth of my son. Bring him to me, would you? Already done, General, Dinglebrush grinned, standing aside to reveal a thin, gaunt man with silver hair and a car 98k rifle slung over his shoulder. The uniform still had that worn Clemenceau Directive badge across it, with four arrows converging on a centre point, and this soldier had added a fresh stitch to its corners, as if to underline his belief in this cause. What's your name, son? McKay asked the gaunt Latvian. Kristaps, Private Kristaps, the Latvian stammered. Lieutenant Dinglebrush tells me you have word of reinforcement from the Lion of Africa of all people. Can you be sure of this? Private Kristaps glanced from side to side, as if about to reveal a huge secret, before saying, It's true, sir. I was there with him. I saw him with my own eyes. I rode ahead to get a sit-rep of the land, but after dodging some patrols, I decided it made more sense to just go to Kiev rather than head back. McKay's eyes widened. This was very different to the story he had heard. So this Latvian had detached himself from Paul von Ledovorbeck's relief force? How long ago was this, Private? McKay asked. Just shy of a week, sir, but they were making rapid progress. The Redeemers, they called themselves. The Lion told us he's going to gobble up the Reds and that Lenin is next. Dinglebrush made an expression of embarrassment. 
No, Private, don't get carried away. We don't want to fan the flames of vicious rumours now, do we? As if brought back down to earth, the Latvian Private nodded sadly before piping up. Sir, according to the General's plans, he should be arriving here within a day or two. Then that settles it, Private Christaps, McKay said. We will hold out for three days, and if there is no sign then, I will call for you again to ask why the lion has left us to be slaughtered. The Latvian gulped and nodded excitedly, and as he did so, a whistle was blown in the near distance. McKay's Polish lookout barked something in Polish to a neighbouring lookout, who yelled something in German to a neighbour. General, enemy reds approaching, came the final translation. Private, return to your men, McKay said, almost in a whisper. Dinglebrush, you're with me. Let's paint the town... red. Dinglebrush laughed nervously before removing two pistols, one in each hand, from two side holsters. His bright yellow waistcoat was now somewhat faded and dirty, and a large bandolier was now perched over his frame, which had been significantly reduced in the last few weeks of want. For sheer style alone, Dinglebrush deserved to survive this thing, McKay thought, but he would not hold his breath. Thousands of miles away, in a room far removed from the danger of war-torn Kiev, sat several delegates. A gentleman, began Felix Kalander. We are gathered for our first assembly of the Arbitration Committee, and I thank you heartily for joining us. Today we are also accompanied by honourable gentlemen from different delegations, who wish to observe our decisions here today. I would like to welcome in particular the American President, Mr. Woodrow Wilson, who has recently recovered sufficiently to visit us in person today. A polite applause followed, as the eyes of the room turned to focus on the gaunt, shriveled shell of a man who called himself the President. Well enough to observe, though he may have been, Wilson was not well enough to stand or even to talk. He nodded with a weak smile on his lips, uncomfortable with the attention. Thank you, gentlemen, Kalander said, before gesturing to the first designated speechmaker of the committee that day, Vittorio Orlando. Orlando rose to his feet. Gentlemen, I stand before you as a man of principle, but also of compromise. This recent war has torn asunder all that we held dear as Christian statesmen, yet it was during the peace that some of the most intractable divisions were drawn out into the open. These divisions threatened to make enemies out of friends, to transform the peace negotiations into an exercise of infamy. Thankfully, these disasters have not come to pass. In the next few days, I hope to present, along with my honourable friends on the Arbitration Committee, the final peace treaty for Germany. Within that document are many articles, and many changes to the status quo are contained therein. Antonio Mora then rose from his chair, and Vittorio Orlando bowed respectfully before sitting back down. I thank my colleague from Italy, Mora began, before inhaling deeply and continuing... Spain, it is true, has not expended her blood in this war. She has not known the horrors of the Western Front, the terrors of going over the top, or the shocking losses which sear communities and cut right to the bone of humanity. However, Spain has watched on as these horrors occurred. She has watched the best and brightest of humanity tear itself to pieces. So Spain proclaims alongside its friends today, never again. We of the Arbitration Committee believe that this treaty is a guarantee of that peaceful future. We believe that with the exchanges implicit in the treaty, and the treaties of alliance and defence therein, that peace will be guaranteed into the next century. I invite now my friend, the President Marshal of France, to speak on the peace. Mora sat down and President Marshal Foch stood up gingerly. While he was not used to being presented in such a way, Foch quickly captured the attention of everyone in the room with his opening line. German militarism is dead. We have killed it, gentlemen. We, the men in this room, the representatives of nations great, large and small, have smothered the destructive force of aggressive Prussianism before it could inflict any more devastation upon the world. This is a victory for Western civilization, but this victory contains many additional sides. To the east... It is the understanding of the Arbitration Committee that reinforcements have been sent to relieve the troubled forces under the command of General David McKay. 
I understand that Paul von Leto Vorbeck, so appointed by the Allies for this Operation Redeemer, has made great progress and stands to relieve General McKay at Kiev. What wonderful news, and what a great thing it is that the ruffians of the post-war era can be sent on such a noble mission. We do not know the extent to which it will rehabilitate the German character, if indeed it does at all. However, I am confident in the abilities and the honour of one general, Paul von Leto Vorbeck. Should he not be victorious here, he will keep fighting until he is. Gentlemen, as you know, the celebrated Clemenceau Directive came under serious attack following the betrayal of this noble mission by Bolshevik spies, who ruined McKay's rations and exposed his tactical plans, leaving him open to ambush near Smolensk not a month before. Since then, as has been said, McKay holds the fort in Kiev, but while we have been distracted in our ivory towers, the rest of the world has not sat still. To the east, a great beast is being unleashed, and only we have the power to tame it. Foch loosened his tie and coughed before turning to the next page of his speech. How long did the President Marshall plan to speak for? What did he plan to say? Was a commentary on the state of Europe truly necessary when the Bolsheviks were at the gates of Kiev and the Germans were soon to be handed a final peace treaty? Foch certainly thought so, exclaiming, I know there are some among us who might ask why this process of reaching an accord with Germany has taken so long. To them, I will say, Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This piece is in fact a jigsaw puzzle, consisting of pieces which were brought to the table by many individuals of different countries. It is, of course, impossible to finish this puzzle because it requires all the pieces and yet in the process of making the puzzle, a whole lot of wrangling must take place, as the different pieces are fitted in, some are forced too hard, some need to be moved around more than others, and other pieces cannot seem to fit, no matter what one does. Thankfully, our jigsaw puzzle is complete after six months of work, and it could not be so without the sacrifices and compromises of the men in this room. Truly, you are some of the most impressive people I have ever met, and my country will not soon forget the lengths you went to for the sake of peace. It is written on my heart and the hearts of all my countrymen. Hear, hear, boomed several voices in the room, and a quiet applause gradually took over, with some singing the French national anthem. In spite of himself, René Massigli found that tears had come to his eyes. Could this ordeal finally be over? Foch signalled to Premier Poincaré, who then rose from his seat. Thank you, President Marshall, Poincaré said. Gentlemen, we have sacrificed much to get to this point, but our mission is not yet finished. In the different corners of the world, the central powers and their cruel spheres of influence have collapsed, forcing us to rush to prevent disaster. In such sphere, which has been particularly troubled, the Arabian Peninsula, a recent revolt by numerous potentates against the rule of King Hussein bin Ali, has moved us to send an investigative committee to ascertain the situation. 
Having travelled to Palestine yesterday, this five-man committee will surely resolve the differences of the two allied parties and bring us all closer together in time for making the final treaty of peace. Another round of applause followed, and Sir Alistair Tancred rose to his feet. Gentlemen, Tancred began, I know you will believe me when I say that these triumphs in diplomacy could not have been achieved without your significant contributions. We have made peace in Germany, in Hungary, and soon enough in Austria. A peace treaty remains under construction for Bulgaria and Turkey, but judging by our past record, I am confident that these can be constructed soon. I wish to draw your attention once more to the admirable exploits of our expert mediator, Monsieur Felix Kalender. Under his guidance, the annual conference resolution has been established, which provides for an annual gathering of representatives of countries seated in this room. Might I suggest that the annual conference preserve mindfully the spirit of cooperation reached now? Might I also urge that our American friends do all in their power to remain linked to Europe? Truly, it is through constant cooperation and regular affirmations of friendship that peace will be preserved. I cannot imagine a worse crime than to repeat the horrors of the recent war. I cannot imagine a greater shame than to allow petty jealousies and rivalries to disrupt the natural flow of friendship which greets me in this room. Gentlemen, for the sake of future generations, we must not fail. More self-congratulatory clapping followed. Answering the challenge, Bruce Pug rose to speak for the American delegation, nodding as he did so in President Wilson's direction. Gentlemen, Pug began, I do not need to add much to the noble utterances contributed here today, save that we are embarking now on a long and challenging road together. It will not always be easy for trust to prevail, nor will it always be prudent to forgo military spending in the name of the social good. Yet, if mankind is to advance beyond this narrow prism, then we must at least try. It is my earnest hope that with terms not too demanding of her sovereignty, Congress will approve of this treaty and will commit in the future to a limited arrangement aimed at securing European defence. I wish to make no guarantees, for promises in politics are as useful as an umbrella in the wind, but I do make a solemn promise to do my utmost to preserve this current peace. I look forward to having the final treaty before the room next week so that I can confirm the good intentions of my countrymen with a provisional signature. Charles Shear then rose and looked around the room. The polished oak table, now a signature of the Annabay Hotel, gleamed and lit up the long and luxurious room as the breeze could be heard outside rustling the trees and spreading the birdsong. It was as though nature had returned at long last to the Annabay Hotel. Of course, it had always been there, but neither Shear nor his counterparts and colleagues had noticed it. Thank you for your patience and diligence in these recent days, gentlemen, Shear said, adding, I will not take up any more of your time than is absolutely necessary, for I am aware that soon this meeting, and therefore this conference, must come to a close. With my seat on the arbitration committee, however, I must speak, however briefly and inadequately, for the smaller nations of Europe and the world. Alsatians and Lorrainers, caught between the greatest rivalry of nations hosted by the European continent, know a great deal about war. They know they are tired of war and want no more of it. I urge you all to think of those other nations further afield in a similar position. Think of Eastern Europe, poised so closely on the edge of a knife, so close to the abyss of Bolshevism and revolution, so desperately in need of aid. I wish to thank my peers for swallowing some of their suspicions in the name of the greater good, in the name of ridding the world of Bolshevism. We have all sacrificed much for this cause, but there is no more noble a cause that I know of today. While we honour those that fight now in Kiev against terrible odds, we acknowledge that the forces of violent revolution, like the forces of anarchism before them, thrive on fear and misinformation. Soon, we hope, the world will know its heroes and its villains, and it will be secured by the one and saved from the other. To defeat Bolshevism is to save Eastern Europe, to save Germany and, consequently, to save the West. Whether we fight against Bolshevism, or disease, or privation, or hopelessness, I believe that we must fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder, if we are to stand any chance of success. This, gentlemen, is the lesson I have learned from the last six months. Soon enough, the fruits of these lessons will become crystal clear. Thousands of miles to the east, with the moon high in the sky, General McKay fought to stay awake. 
For the last 48 hours, the Red Army had launched probing attacks on the men's positions. Not enough to send them packing, more than enough to give them a bloody nose and to prevent them from getting any proper sleep. Now, having cycled in new soldiers for what must be the final onslaught, the Red Army seemed to be making their final push. A weak sound of a whistle could be heard from that faithful Pole, who looked even more worn than usual. Some of the men were dropping with exhaustion, others were going mad. It was, McKay was forced to admit, the perfect tactics for a numerically superior force to adopt. Why bring all your forces to bear at once for a select period of time when you could swap them around and maintain pressure at all times? McKay steadied himself, and Dinglebush burst through the door into the second-story office yet again. The Belgian's face told a story all of its own. We are surrounded, General, Dinglebush said in barely a whisper. The last road out of the city has been cut by the Reds. I have heard reports of the gradual encroachment by the Reds on all our positions. How much longer? McKay asked. Dinglebush knew what he meant. For some time, dynamite had been laced throughout the shells of buildings and under the foundations of critical bridges and blocks. The maze of explosives had been made possible thanks to the bounty of dynamite left behind in Kiev's arsenal, which had provided McKay with the inspiration for this desperate idea in the first place. It was a last-ditch effort to take as many Reds down with them as possible. They would wait until the enemy had converged on all the main areas, and then, in the cellars of critical buildings where those networks of dynamite converged, the engineers would set it off. There were five such points in the city where the dynamite converged, and one was in McKay's office. Are all men within the perimeter of the red line? McKay asked. Dinglebrush nodded. General, those that are outside of the red line do not intend to return. Desertion has, unfortunately, been rather high in some areas. McKay sighed. It was to be expected in circumstances like these. I want these final lines of defence reinforced. With all you have, Lieutenant, McKay said. How are the wounded? We have some men willing to take up arms, General, Dinglebrush said, as though in awe. They aren't going to wait for the Reds to get to them first. McKay nodded. Very well, Lieutenant. It is time to detonate. Send out the order to the men. Code Red. Steer clear of all buildings and retreat to the fixed positions as arranged earlier. Let's send those commies a message. McKay went to stand, having forgotten himself. The previous day a piece of shrapnel had struck him in the ankle. It was a pathetic wound in many respects, compared to some of the holes which other men were bearing, but the pain was a constant, niggling reminder of how far he was from home. He couldn't help but wince. I will send out the order, Dinglebrush said. Good luck, General. And you, Dinglebrush, and you. McKay limped over to the crumple of wire where the detonator resided. The cold wiring told nothing of the damage he was about to inflict. In front of his field of vision, McKay knew that hundreds of metres of cable was outstretched, connected to countless buildings and structures, as well as innumerable tripwires and mines. The detonation of the dynamite would render Kiev a burning husk, with only a resilient centre still remaining. It was a terrible thing to do to a city, but then, this was a terrible time. Forgive me, Kiev. McKay whispered, before applying his weight to the detonator and pressing down. A faint crack could be heard, followed by a distant rumble and boom. In front of his field of vision, McKay watched with astonishment as a street's worth of buildings collapsed into the ground. Dust, plaster, stone and small fires could be seen in the place where those buildings had once stood. In the space of less than a minute, the act was replicated across the city, Amidst the sight of this destruction was the deafening sound. First the unparalleled boom, then an ominous silence, punctuated by the screams and groans of those soldiers caught in the crossfire. The whole ordeal was over in less than five minutes, and Kiev lost some 75% of its buildings, with only crumpled shells still standing by the end. Grabbing his binoculars, McKay discovered that while the destruction had been impressive, The end result only served to illuminate precisely how precarious their position was. Red Army soldiers as far as the eye could see, the horizon clouded with vehicles of varying size, and McKay could even see pained expressions on their faces. Which one of these men would fire that final bullet? 
which one would end his struggle? McKay felt his knees shaking. Was this where he was to end his life? In this armpit of a city, leading this thankless expedition, abandoned by the rest of the world? Had he fought so hard for so long against his country's enemies just for this? It was then that something odd caught his eye. Through the binoculars, McKay could make out Red Army soldiers coming towards him, but he could also see them turning around. Were they retreating? Surely not, so why turn back? He estimated that they were just under a mile away, across the major bridge and beyond much of the suburbs to the west. So what was happening in the west? Just then the door was flung open, and McKay spun around, pistol in hand, before he had even realised what he was doing. These years of conflict had honed his reflexes and turned him into a machine of war. It was Dinglebrush, and he was bearing an expression more hopeful than McKay had seen for some time. The core, Dinglebrush gasped. Why the hesitation? And just as he asked himself the question, McKay saw the answer. The Belgian was wounded, a patch of blood betraying the fact that he had been shot in the chest. McKay moved to him, supporting his weight on a disused crate. Dinglebrush looked up at him. You did it, General, he said. You beat the Reds. We are... we are saved. McKay's confused face moved Dinglebrush to elaborate with what little energy he had left. Sir, the Freikorps, the Germans, they have rescued us. McKay stood back from his Belgian lieutenant for a moment in a state of surprise. Could it be? Had the Germans truly made it? Dinglebrush gestured to him. I received a messenger from General von Leto Vorbeck. He is he is here, sir, with some 50,000 men. They've come to save you. They're here to bring us home. McKay's expression changed from one of confusion to relief and then to concern. He placed a hand on Dinglebrush's shoulder. Don't worry about me. Old boy, the Belgian stammered. How did it, how did it happen? McKay mouthed, to which Dinglebrush replied with a hint of a smile, gesturing to his signature yellow waistcoat. It seems I was not very well camouflaged among the drab greys of Kiev. I will, I will get a medic, McKay said. No, General, please, stay with me, I want to, I want to tell you something. McKay gave him his full attention. Now you know I've been through the councils of Europe. I've seen... I've seen many things. I know that those men in the conference... I know they laughed at me, but I do not care. Dinglebrush began to slide off the crate, and McKay laid him down gently on the floor. You... Dinglebrush struggled to push out the words. You never laughed at me. You always... You always made me proud... It was my honour. McKay realised he had been crying. Only now did he also realise how attached he had become to this strange Belgian, that well-meaning, kind-hearted soul who had joined him of his own volition. Please, General, do not cry. I go to my... I go to my maker. McKay heard the door open again and another soldier walked into the room, the young private's expression changing when he saw the moving scene taking shape before him. McKay felt Dinglebrush tighten his grip, and he moved closer so he could hear him. Dinglebrush seemed angry, or perhaps just determined. David! David McKay! Do not follow me! David, go home! To your family! Dinglebrush died, his hand still clasped in McKay's. General, what happened? the private asked, as McKay gently closed over Dinglebrush's eyes. General McKay rose gradually to his feet, gingerly holding on the wall to avoid placing too much pressure on his ankle. A soldier has been slain, private, McKay simply said. A few hundred metres away, the temperature was far more ferocious. General, we have contact! boomed one of von Leto Vorbeck's forward soldiers. It was impossible to tell whom. Attack, von Leto Vorbeck said, for the fatherland. His horse moved into a gallop, and as his men saw him, they ran forward also. As he moved, 
Von Leto Vorbeck fell to the ground shake beneath his horse. What was this? An earthquake? Now? No, not an earthquake. He could see the buildings of Kiev as he came over the crest of the hill, impassioned Germans by his side, and bit by bit, he watched them fall. His horse stopped. The Germans running beside him stopped. The Red Army soldiers they'd been moving towards turned around and couldn't help but gawk at the spectacle. Von Leto Vorbeck's first thought was that the expedition had been in vain. Had the forces of the Clemenceau Directive just blown themselves up? Surely not. General McKay didn't strike him as the needlessly sacrificial type. Those Red Army soldiers then resumed their duties and began to engage his men. Send the cavalry to the right flank, Von Leto Vorbeck boomed. Before him he could see what remained of the city's old main street. A central shell of buildings were still standing, and as the dust cleared, he could make out Red Army soldiers fighting somebody inside that shell, so it hadn't been an act of mass suicide after all. Von Leto Vorbeck was relieved. Onwards, men! On me! he yelled. He watched as Red Army officers attempted to force their men onwards without much success, and as a small brigade of Clemenceau Directive soldiers launched an attack out of the rubble into their rear. Mass confusion was bad enough in his own ranks, as the explosion had deafened them for the most part, but this confusion was even worse for the enemy. Many had already begun to flee, a sight which only emboldened his men. They pushed onwards. By the time the sun had risen, the Red Army had evacuated the city. Bodies lay strewn across the streets, and fire continued to smoulder in the shattered remnants of a once proud city, which was little more than a husk now. The citizens had long since gone, and it was a city of soldiers, a city of war. As he stood there next to what looked like an old post office, a soldier approached him. General, we have found the Australian, General McKay. He is alive, sir. Von Leto Vorbeck snapped back to attention. Excellent work, soldier. Bring me to him. The emaciated, dusty, Weather-beaten Australian who shook von Leto Vorbeck's hand was quite unlike the man he had conversed with in Paris or London. He looked exhausted, tragic, utterly spent, but above all, sick of war. I need a coffin, was what he kept saying. It was later communicated that his second-in-command, a Lieutenant Generous Dinglebrush, had been among the casualties. Von Leto Vorbeck had had to double-check that this was the same Dinglebrush who had so distinguished himself for all the wrong reasons in the conference. Indeed, it was him. A coffin will be brought up, General, Von Leto Vorbeck said, before placing his hand on the seated Australian general's shoulder. Your war is over, General. It is time we brought you home. In later years, the exploits of Operation Redeemer would enter into legend. The Australian general who dynamited a city to save his men, the bumbling but lovable Belgian who sacrificed everything, and the German general determined to redeem himself, leading the rescue. All of this provided excellent fodder for a future film, and indeed Operation Redeemer was released in theatres to much fanfare in 1932. Clark Gable assumed the role of the tragic Dinglebush, and when the film opened in Belgium, it caused scenes of emotional outpouring and unity, the likes of which had never been seen since the country's unification. Dinglebrush was proclaimed a national hero, and a statue of him still stands in Brussels, while Von Leto Vorbeck only elevated his legend to previously unimaginable heights. McKay, alone among the cast, retired shortly after returning to Warsaw. By the end of July 1919, he was back in Australia with his family. He essentially faded into obscurity after that, although his friends later recorded that they never saw him in his uniform ever again. And that history, friends, is the end of the episode. I know it's a bit different this week, and I'm sure some of you might not like it, but I feel that this different tone is warranted, considering how many questions I've received about the state of Russia and how important that front has become. Next time we'll of course have more news on the conference as the final peace treaty is hopefully completed, being now in its final stages. This episode, if you like, serves as a kind of bridge between the old and the new. Next time we resume our story, the actors will be mindful of the sacrifices made at Kiev, and much will be said of the Red Army 
who retreated from Kiev's outskirts, enabling the forces of the Clemenceau Directive to withdraw in safety and for von Leto Vorbeck's men to follow them home as heroes. How would the Allies respond to this act of German aid? What impact, if any, might this have on the German peace treaty? Who would fill in the power vacuum left in the Ukraine, now that the Soviets had largely withdrawn? What would be the legacy of the Clemenceau Directive? Tune in next week for our penultimate episode of the Delegation Game to find out. Until then, though, you've been a dear delegate, or a listener, or both, and I've been the Delegation Master. Thanks so much for joining us, and I'll be seeing you all next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.